And here we are at the end of our journey of season one. Finally, anger and its kissing cousin rage. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of definitions of anger, and some of them include warranted anger and rage. Uh, you know, if somebody is physically torturing you, that's that's angering, and if someone is legitimately mentally abusing you, that's also angering. If a society is doing the same, that is angering. Um, And I guess appropriate anger, at least from what I have read, uh, is differentiated from inappropriate by whether or not someone agrees with you (laughs) that that it's warranted. I think that's a little flimsy. Uh, There may have to be rule by committee on that one. I'm not sure. Um, But by whatever definition, all agree that anger is almost a parasitic uh, emotion that is connected to pain. I mean, in every definition, it's pain causes anger. Anger doesn't just come out of the blue. So in some sense, just like a parasite uh, is not considered a proper organism, anger is not considered, I guess, an actual human emotion in that it can't live on its own inside you. It needs a, a host, an emotional host called pain. But that's all psychobabble and my pseudo psychobabble about psychobabble. And it has nothing to do with how we actually feel in life, right? Um, this is part of the problem with trying to diagnose ourselves in just cold, logical ways, is that that doesn't actually alleviate the anger. I think my my dad is a perfect example of that, because, as I've mentioned before, he was um, even considered himself, I think, a rageaholic. He was a workaholic, a rageaholic. He would fly off the handle and yell and scream and slam cabinet doors and get in your face and just make you feel scared. Um, if things didn't go his way or if you said something out of turn or whatever it is that would make him fly off the handle. He mellowed out later in life, but this was how I knew him partly as a, a young child. Um, the other part was that he was loving and completely docile. So he was a master of opposites, I suppose, in that sense. Uh, But then it turns out, plot twist, uh, oh, he's an alcoholic. Perhaps that's what's behind his raging mania. But even as he became a recovering alcoholic, uh, alcohol or not, he still had that, that rage and that anger that would come out, you know, when pressed. And so I would argue, based on my observations of the old man, that uh, narcissism was the root of his anger and rage, and not, yes, like being contradicted too terribly much. Now, with any bit of luck, I didn't inherit his narcissism, but I certainly inherited his anger, or I learned it. Um, but my anger, I turned inward, I turned it on myself. So rarely would I rage outwardly at anyone, but I raged at myself. I took it out on me. 
And, um, and I used sarcasm and I still use sarcasm. It's still a piece of the mask, right? Uh, to interact with the world, which is, uh, you know, that's always tinged with anger. It's a form of anger quite often. So when we're in pain, we lash out or we lash in. Um, we lash. At least we tend to. And that's because, again, the self is modeled on the physical. The first thing the brain knows or the body knows when it wakes up into self-awareness, um, how does that self form? The first thing it forms on, based on, is its own sense of the body and bodily mechanics. So in some sense, you, as a self-aware being, are an avatar for the mechanics of the body. And then uh, after that, for what the body is sensing, you know, sensory input from the outside world. These are the very rudimentary basics of what a self is. But as we've talked about throughout all of these episodes, even this adult person uh, that we claim is sort of the pinnacle of human nature is a misidentified phase, right? We've talked about the analogy of uh, chewing through the cocoon. Um, and I've uh, sort of said, well, human nature, we need to change, you know, we, we're stuck in this definition of human nature that is uh, partial. But really what we're stuck in is a phase of ourselves. We believe that phase of ourselves because we become adults and then we die and that's it, uh, physically, we believe that that's it for us psychologically until we die. Um, but death itself isn't just a physical thing. Death itself needs to also be, prior to physical death, the death of the psychological self. And then the rebirth into our wholeness. And that is human nature. Um, and because we Westerners are so completely divorced from our interconnected nature, uh, we're actually one step removed. We, we need to have a death of the brain self, of our psychological self, into heart self before the big enchilada can happen. And having said that, I must also add that that this, if you want to call it a process, this process, this transformation is only as quick and as slow as one understands uh, in such a way that one stops blocking out truth, right? So the length of time of the process can be the snap of a finger these various deaths, or it can be drawn out depending on what your defense mechanism is, depending on how much will you're willing to give up. And since wholeness is an all or nothing proposition, you have to give up everything. You have to give it all up because you as wholeness, the thing that you've been living your entire life isn't real. It's um, a dysfunction. At this point, I mean, it's a phase. Really, this should be a phase of childhood that we pass through. But uh, but that ain't happening. So, 
here we are dealing with that. Having to unravel our adult psychological selves. Is it any wonder that those who have done this or similar work have a sort of childlike quality to them and innocence? I mean, we end up back at innocence. We end up back at sort of the cutoff point at which this phase of us should have ended. We should have been as little children all along in terms of the innocence, not in terms of the narcissism (laughs) and the things that we need to deal with, but in terms of the honesty and, um, I mean, think about how you react to, well, let's go to the first episode after the introduction. I mean, the introduction is heady, right? The first episode about love, uh, that's pretty raw, right? That's, um, that might even have been hard for you to listen to, but it's real. So reality is hard for us to listen to in its raw form. We need a spoonful of sugar to help that medicine go down. Um, And why is it medicine? It's medicine because it's one person demonstrating what's going on in all of us to one degree or another. And it's the thing we don't want to look at. This is why a so-called hero's journey takes a hero (laughs) because it's always the things that you don't want to look at that are you. The beasts you're slaying are you are your own inner turmoils. So let's get back to mine because it wasn't all about my father. Uh, Mom, mommy dearest played a role and let's see something here. So of course, as a young boy, you want to save your mom. You want to be your dad this is um, this is Freud 101. It's the part of Freud that uh, stuck around. <laughs> uh, it just happens to be true. And so in that model, of course, your mom then uh, loves and cherishes and thanks you, right? Except actually my mom, when I was growing up, was also a bit of a, a rager in a different way. Now, she would, uh, when I think about it now, it's like, God, I can't imagine raising two kids, divorced, having to have a full-time job. I mean, just having three cats and being married is difficult, you know? Like, the two of us (laughs) trying to wrangle house cats is, you know, like, I want to say is like uh, dealing with perpetual three-year-olds, but probably three-year-olds are worse. But at least they go on to be four-year-olds. These cats don't seem to want to be four and five and six-year-olds. But I digress. Uh, So here's my mom, divorced from the man her parents never approved of, living a life her parents never wanted for her, coming up from a time when what your parents thought about you was pretty much the world, should mean everything to you. But, you know, breaking out of that mold... And succeeding. I mean, being successful in her work. And frankly, me and my sister didn't come out too shabby. And my mom always says that was because of us and not her. And to some extent, she is correct. But I think in our formative years, certainly her and my dad um, did shower us with love and affection. And so we were ready to weather the storm of the reality of their relationship with each other, how they felt about themselves and how they would project that onto us. But I remember growing up, my mom would come home from work and she'd 
lie down on a couch or sit in a chair and just zone out watching the TV. Um, and if I got up to, you know, I would do the same <laughs> coming home from school. And if, but if I got up to go to the bathroom or something and, or go into another room, she would say, Oh, can you bring me my hairbrush or something along those lines? You know, whatever it was she wanted, could you bring me a nail file? And if I brought it to her, I was the greatest, sweetest kid on earth. Oh, what a good boy. And if I didn't, if I was lazy or I just like, it's in my way, I'm headed to another room. Um, God forbid I take those extra 20 steps. Then she would yell at me and uh, he swears, you know, like, God, you know, I won't swear at you now because this is a clean show. But she would um, she would swear at me and call me uh, every name in the book and make me feel like garbage. And she doesn't even really remember this about herself. It was almost like she was hypnotized. Like she would come home from work and just that, you know, that after work stupor that we get. Um, and you just want to collapse. And But I think parts of your personality also collapse. Um, the parts that are just trying to keep a good face about it all. But really... Um, when that collapses, you're left with how you really feel about yourself. And then you project that outward. If, um, if you're not aware, if you're not working on it. So that was, um, partially how I remember my mom, at least through middle school and, um, in high school, things got better ish in certain ways. And then, um, in college, we finally became buddies. But when I think about the difference between where my mom's anger came from and my dad's, I mean, my dad, he must have had some stuff go on in his childhood that I just don't know about. That's the only thing I can think of. Um, because what what made him pick up alcohol? He was a really good-looking, intelligent, creative uh and socially active man for justice uh, growing up. And um, I think athletic when he was younger and all of that. I mean, he he's one of those, those white guys that you look at and you go, oh, he had everything. So what made him become an alcoholic? What made him such a raging maniac? What was so bad in his life? And it's funny because he's uh, an ultra liberal, but you could actually... But you can actually see that this is the same question liberals ask about Trump voters. It's something that Obama said in a speech recently. They won. What are they so angry about? I've never seen a bunch of people who won so angry in my life. You know, he said something to that effect. And it's true. These people have phantom, what seem to liberals like phantom angers. And angers that are stoked by... Uh, right-wing media, and so on and so on. How did that happen? It didn't happen for my mom. I mean, she, her, her rage and anger were, were more, uh, I think, circumstantial to how she felt about herself and her adult life in ways that I think she might have been more conscious about or at least was more upfront with uh, with my sister and I about, I mean, I, in a way, I think she, she more took it out on herself than on the world. It's just that in the privacy of her own home, sometimes she exploded in, 
incongruous ways at, at her children. It wasn't all the time, but it was there. Um, but I think that had to do with being in a pressure cooker more so than my dad. I mean, if my dad was in a pressure cooker, unless there's something I really don't know about, it was all, uh, in his head, (laughs) you know, it was a product of things he didn't want to look at, even as he became, I would say addicted to therapy because in our household, everything was addicted to work. I'm a work addict. I'm a rageaholic, a workaholic. Well, he was also a therapyaholic. Like therapy became the thing that he did, in my opinion, um, to not have to actually look at himself, to say, see everyone, I am looking at myself. I'm, I'm going to a shrink. I'm medicated. And by the way, Maybe I should have said this up front in the first episode. You know, I I use this loose language about psychology um, as if I'm poo-pooing going to a psychologist or any of that, and I'm not. That's just the way I speak about it. I think, as I believe I've said before, uh, I hope I've made clear, that it has a, a great purpose to get right within yourself. But the fact that it ends there is the problem. It's not get right within yourself and go on with this sense of self. That sense of self needs to be um, chewed through, transformed, mutated, not evolved, but mutated into the next phase of us, into our wholeness. It's not enough. But it's better than nothing. Okay, so that's uh, that's my mom and dad, and that's me. There's something in this situation that's really subtle and interesting, and it's something we've been talking around in the past uh, season of this show, which is you are thought. You are that. And so... These emotions that well up from thought are you. You are your emotions. Um, You are your anger and you are your pain. So in that sense, there is no difference. That's why it doesn't matter the, the, what I said before the psychobabble about the difference between anger as an emotion and other real emotions is like that. Well, okay, that's, that's great on paper, but they're all you. Um, but we say they're all affecting us. So claiming that it is this symbiotic thing or this parasitic thing or not real is to keep up the facade of the difference between the thinker and thought. And it's an easy facade to keep up because we think we're in an emotional state. We think we're in pain. There's an us separate from that pain and we're in pain. And that's causing the anger. And so if we can alleviate that pain, then we're no longer people in that pain. Right? And we've talked about this in terms of ghosts of the past. As if there are demons torturing us until we submit and become the demon. Right? We, we go from being people in pain to becoming pained people. This is when we become the real, the most negative among us, right? But when we're saying that that you are thought, you're no separate from your thoughts, you're no separate from, you're not separate from your reactions, you're no different than your emotions. 
many of you hear that and you want to rebel because you've been taught differently. But think about this. Nothing in your head isn't you. Right? Think about the truth of that statement. There ain't nothing going on in your noggin that ain't you. So it is you. The only thing you're becoming is strongly identified in one or a series of thoughts, of past experiences, so that you can claim control over them. But it's all a form of, like, acceptable schizophrenia. It's you in shards. You are your past experiences. This is how we can move so liquid-like between being controlled by past experiences to acting them out to being the controller from being in pain to being one who gives pain. And that's what we do. And that's either externalized. You give pain to other people. You bully other people or to yourself. You bully yourself. And in some sense, I got lucky in the aftermath of my molestation. I mean, how many, Women and men uh, get molested and and then end up in a sex trade or a sex industry of some sort um, as a way to try to control their past, to try to relive it like a ghost again, you know, a broken record, just skipping, going over it and over it and over it and acting it out. Um, That's in... That's if they take it out on themselves. If they take it out on other people, they become the molester. They become the rapist. Their rage goes out into the world. And you know, it's funny, if the root of us is sorrow, if that's what we're born into because of not being born understanding ourselves from the point of view of wholeness, but from the point of view of the body, then like all these other things are you know, are completely terrible and more awful in some circumstances. Sidebar issues. They're distractions to keep us from that root. And this is what we do to ourselves. This is what we do to each other. We torture each other in great ways and small ways. Which isn't to say that there aren't uh, moments of happiness and that some people don't live positive lives and things like that, but it's it's the whole reason that we say pain is relative. Like, knowing that people are starving in an oppressed country doesn't take away the pain of of a rich kid from suburbia, whatever they're feeling. Like, the knowledge of that doesn't do away with it. Winning the election doesn't give the Trump voter any solace. Um, at least, you know, the ones that we're talking about. The ones that are consistently angry, bullying types. Because one of two reasons, right? Either they're still in pain or they are pained people. People who aren't in any pain but don't know it. Because they've adopted the persona of one who is in pain. They've been in pain for so long that they don't know what it looks like not to be in it. So again, this notion that that you are in pain and there's an entity in pain, You, this actually speaks to that. It speaks, it shows that that's, that's not true. 
you cannot be in pain and still be a pained person. You cannot have anything to be angry about and still feel anger. You can wake up from a bad dream that you forgot about, and that can color your day, right? These are all us. That which we separate and call objects in the head, thoughts, thought constructs, it's all us. We're that. People who are into Eastern types of philosophy and religion talk about dualism, you know, the separation of things as though it's an illusion. There's only oneness. And they tend to talk about it in terms of things out in the world, you know, organisms, all organisms are, are interrelated and, and are therefore one because, um, as I've said here, um, all of physical manifestation is transcended and included within one consciousness. Um, but we don't take that next step and realize that actually mm, for us, for the way that we behave, the fundamental uh, illusion of separation is between self and thought. It always starts with us, for us. And so if we come to understand the, uh, the illusion of separation in the world, um, that's great. Or, you know, between objects, that everything is just one energy manifesting as whatever our senses allow, okay? Um, but that is just knowledge. That has no real meaning until it's you. And it can only be you, <laughs> that self-aware perspective of oneness, not just someone talking about it as though talking about it and maybe having a good feeling about it equal I am that point of view. No, that point of view is only the point of view of one who is not broken up inside, not a separate self inside. But for that to be the case, one has to see the truth of all of this. Because seeing through it means the end of the psychological self, the time-bound self. That is when the timeless, the oneness, that transcends and includes the illusion, if you want to call it that, um, that's when that comes forth as the self-aware aspect of that very body you believe is yours. This, not sorrow, is our true birthright. Wholeness is our birthright. Wholeness transcends and includes this. So, in some sense, okay, yeah, there will be sorrow and all of that. But it should be a phase of us. It shouldn't be the whole of us. It should be something that we grow through. It should be a stage of our, of our childhood, of our coming into being as adults, psychologically. And once as adults, we understand ourselves as wholeness, not just because our parents taught us this or we have a better society that, like, tells us this and recycling's good. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm not talking about just going green <laughs> or adopting a, 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 a point of view uh, that is taught. I'm talking about a complete revolution from the inside out that happens. No different than becoming a babbling, drooling baby 
is a completely different being than a teenager who is a completely different being than an elderly person. With any bit of luck, of course, all of the problems we're talking about are us being stuck at certain phases of our development. Well, that's um, that's all well and good and needs to be dealt with again. That's where psychology is good. But the final phase that psychology says, presto magic, voila, you are a self-actualized human being. That's also a phase. And we need to recognize that. But not just recognize it, not just ponder it and, oh, is he right? Is he wrong? What is this about? But really, you don't have to take anyone's word for it. You don't need to be raised by a parent or a culture to see this. If you've been going along and doing this work yourself, you feel that revolution happening. You see it. You are it. But again, remember, even if you have been successful in this endeavor and have become more joyous, more happy, less bogged down by the past, had those spontaneous feelings of interconnectedness and oneness, if you're singing Kumbaya right now, or if you were before this and didn't need this at all, you need to hear this message. That's not it. That's not the end of the road. It is correct and healthy. It is the right place to be. But that's not it. So just remain open. Remain with the mystery. Remain with the question. Because the answer, to answer it, to say, I have arrived, is another blockage, is to invite time. The I have arrived is a starting point. And once you've got a starting point, you are locked back into thought, psychological time. The past will come creeping right back, and you won't even know it. You won't know it. You'll be smiling your way through it. (laughs) You'll be raging, and other people will see it. Uh, And that's when you find a group of like-minded people who will not pass judgments on you. Oh, I hate judgments. Be non-judgmental. Because then I have to look at myself and realize what I've done. I've become the very thing that I thought I had just ended. So just remain open. Just be. Be human being. The declaration of victory only leads to more doing, and that is pain. Timelessness, consciousness per se, the now, love has its own doing. Where love is, anger is not, pain is not. Anger in the timeline, expressing as you, is no more. <laughs>